Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And today we are going to talk about one of those cultural practices that often gets put squarely in the barbaric bucket when people outside that culture talk about it and outside of that time. Um, but while it does involve some pretty, uh, you know, make your spine crawly manipulation of the body, there are a lot more layers to it than that. Uh, and heads up, fashion people, this will also cover some fashion elements. Uh, but we're going to talk about the history of foot binding. We've had a few requests for it, and it's also something I've just been fascinated with for a long time, uh, largely coming at it from the the clothing angle. Yeah, I think when we in our in our previous podcast, uh, pop stuff, I think we talked about it a little bit in the episode where we talked about shoes. Yeah, and I will talk about one of the books that I talked about in that episode uh, that was written by an author named Dorothy Coe, who will reference a couple times during this podcast. Uh, and it's estimated that during the height of foot binding's popularity, more than two billion girls had their feet altered in this way. Although, I will say this, looking at multiple different sources, as often happens, I feel like I'm always kind of saying this qualifier, you will see vastly different numbers. Some will list 1 billion, some will list 3 billion, but I found several that list 2 billion, and it's the mean, so I we're using that number. So, <laughs> And regardless, B with a B billion. B billion, like many, many, many. Um, and part of the reason is that this practice went on for more than 10 centuries. I mean, it, it was more than a thousand years of China's cultural history. And that is a very long time. I don't need to tell anyone. Far more than you can really just write off as a cultural or fashion fad. I mean, this was an ingrained part of culture. So we're going to examine today what it is about foot binding that made it such an important cornerstone of Chinese womanhood for so very long and kind of how the the different facets of its place in the culture. The exact origin point of foot binding, we don't really know, uh, as with many things. It may have begun in the late Tang Dynasty between 618 and 906. Some scholars point instead to a period that's uh, actually referred to as the Five Dynasties and Ten States period. And this was a period of time when political upheaval was so constant that leadership in China was changing so rapidly that they it doesn't always get um, given individual dynasty names. It gets lumped under this bigger one. And that was in between the Tang Dynasty and the Song Dynasty. There are several different origin stories that kind of float around. In one, the favorite concubine of an emperor bound her foot into the shape of a hoof so that she could dance on a gilded lotus stage. And this origin story sort of characterizes the binding that the concubine did as similar to using point shoes in ballet. It was a temporary alteration of a dancer's foot. And because this dancing concubine in this story was uh, the emperor's favorite, she set a trend with her tiny lotus feet that she had created for this dance. And ladies of the court wished to emulate her style, and that started the practice. Another version of the story features another concubine who had naturally tiny, delicate feet and was ordered to bind them so that they wouldn't grow. And similar to the dancing tale, this practice was then 
emulated by other court ladies. And then there's another origin theory that suggests that there was an empress uh, during an earlier period that had a club foot, and ladies of the court began binding their feet to resemble her, although some vor- versions of the story portray the empress as demanding that other women be bound so that they would all kind of have a similar foot shape. Uh, and this particular story really predates the Tong Dynasty timeline by more than a thousand years in some tellings. Uh, sometimes it's placed between 1700 and 1027 BCE. And this one is not really substantiated uh, terribly well. So it's usually disregarded by scholars and they tend to favor more of the Tong Dynasty or um, five dynasties and ten states era as being when this all happened. Regardless of exactly how the practice began, we do know that during the Song Dynasty from 960 to 1297, foot binding became more and more popular and became a lot more common throughout the upper classes. And then during the Ming period, uh, which began around 1368, foot binding really spread in popularity to the working classes and even into rural villages. And because of its status symbolism, it's even been theorized that uh, women who wish to marry up adopted this practice uh, and that that's how it eventually saturated Chinese society at almost every level. There are also scholars who argue that marrying into a higher social class wasn't really the motivation for adopting foot binding in more rural areas, but that it was instead a means to keep girls at home working in domestic duties. Yeah, they could not run off to a better life, uh, particularly when they were young and their feet were still kind of being formed and altered in this way. So they would have to stay home and work on textiles and do things around the house. Uh, but the foot binding continued to grow steadily in popularity. And by the middle of the 17th century, pretty much any girl who wished to marry underwent this body modification. And that remained the state of the affairs r- right up until the 20th century. So now back to slightly more squeamishy subjects of how foot binding was actually performed. It is described as having been performed really with great care. And only women were present during what was... Likely a very torturous affair. So first, the girl's feet would be very carefully washed, her nails clipped, and alum and other astringents would be applied to the feet. Then the outer four toes were folded under the foot, which required breaking them. And the feet were then bound up with long cloth wraps to bring the toes very close to the heel in a very extreme arch. And the goal was to form this coveted golden lotus shape. Yeah, and some versions, uh, descriptions that I've read of how this was performed suggest that the feet, uh, the toes weren't broken to fold them under, although some describe it that way. Others say that the, the toes just broke by virtue of them being folded under and then wrapped so tightly they sort of broke throughout the process. Neither sounds very enjoyable. Uh, and when people talk about bound feet, the perception then becomes, I think, that the entire foot was made to be tiny. But that's not entirely accurate. Uh, it's more a matter of kind of folding the foot in such a way that the space it occupies is different than if it were allowed to grow naturally. So a lotus slipper, which is what the shoes uh, for bound feet are called, uh, would cover the toes, which had formed kind of a point at this point, and then the heel. But a significant portion of the actual mass of the foot was actually above the shoe. So you can imagine it sort of being folded down as well as under. 
normally the process of creating this golden lotus foot would start when a girl was really very young and her feet were still malleable. So the bones had not completely solidified yet. So foot binding would usually start between the ages of four and six. And while there were certainly outliers beyond these numbers, children younger than four were not believed to be able to handle the pain of binding their feet. And after the age of six, the bones were a lot more difficult to alter. Yeah, there are stories of girls being altered as early as two and some girls later on as it was sort of spreading into more rural areas uh, when they were really beyond the age where it was most ideal. Um but the, the two to six or the four to six range is what you'll normally see. And this process of actually getting the foot bound into the the desired shape would actually take two to three years because these are children and they're growing. So the bones would have to be rebroken periodically as the foot grew. So as a child grew, they would, you know, continue to wrap the toes under more and more and more as they got longer. And then they would keep binding them and they would rebreak on each binding. Yeah. So, and of course, when a foot is being broken and tied into these positions and and very rarely uncovered, there are going to be other issues aside from all the breakage and the reforming of the way the foot looks. Sores and even gangrene were among the potential risks. And bound feet, particularly as this became a lot more widespread and commonplace, Bound feet were described pretty often as smelling quite unpleasant because unwrapping and washing them was a very time-consuming affair. And in addition to these fairly obvious negative physical effects, uh, foot binding's long-term repercussions on women's health has also been studied in kind of the more modern era. Uh, In 1997, a University of California study published its findings after examining a group of women in Beijing. And so at this point, Foot binding had, was not really happening regularly, but there were still women in the population who had had their feet bound when they were young. And so these researchers found that when they compared all of these women, the women with bound feet had about 5% lower bone density than their peers without bound feet. Uh, and since weight-bearing exercise is one of the things that helps maintain bone density, it makes sense that women with reduced mobility would experience bone loss at a faster rate than people who had not had this done, uh, which is an interesting thing that I don't think I certainly had not thought about it until I was doing the research on this. Yeah. Well, and even knowing the importance of weight bearing exercise and bone health like that is something that never occurred to me either. Yeah. And they do describe, um, I mean, I feel like we should note that women with bound feet could walk, although they were not likely to walk terribly long distances. Right. Uh, it wasn't like they were confined to a chair, which I think sometimes people conjure in their heads that this is crippling to a point that mobility is completely eradicated, but that's not accurate. Uh, they kind of learn to live with this and walk on it. Um, and there are some, um, uh, write-ups of it that suggest that the women that had their feet bound did end up actually developing very strong uh, leg and hip and buttock muscles kind of as compensation for the the state of their feet. Um, but even so, bone loss over time is something that you can't really avoid with, even if you have great muscularity. Right. As with any trend that starts in the upper class and then becomes widespread, there was a certain amount of status that was associated with foot binding. So not only would a bound foot be really delicate and tiny, which were characteristics that were often described as beautiful when mentioned in relation to foot binding, 
It would also make the owner of the foot really unable to do heavy manual labor. A woman with bound feet was elevated beyond work, basically. Uh, A man who could have a wife who was unable to help with manual labor would also gain status. Uh, while the roots of the practice of systematic crippling are, in fact, in the aristocracy, and they initially at their inception were to convey the wealth and standing of the person whose feet were bound, uh, during the Song Dynasty, the overall status of women really shifted into a lower position than it had been. And women at this point really lost some of their power, uh, both in their marriage and in society. And they were no longer as educated as women had been during previous eras. And in this context, uh, foot binding became less about status and fashion, and it sort of took on a more sinister connotation. So at this point, a woman with bound feet was physically weakened and subjugated to the role of a trophy wife, while a man who was married to a woman with bound feet still gained the same status from it, of being able to say, yes, my wife is unable to do work. I I can keep a wife that's just pretty. She's not really contributing to the day-to-day, whereas the woman in that case, her life had shifted completely. But the men in the picture still got the same benefit. At the same time, as foot binding became hugely popular throughout all the social strata, the only women who wouldn't have their feet bound were the ones who were extremely poor or the ones who worked on fishing boats. And so these were women who just really simply could not afford the life of reduced mobility that came with having their feet bound. And on another sort of level of it, uh, outside of first the sort of fashion and empowerment and then the subjugation of women, Bound feet also had this element of being considered extremely erotic and beautiful, uh, and they were really even fetishized by some. Books were written about maximizing sexual pleasure by stroking bound feet, Uh, although the sort of odd flip is that a woman's bound feet were virtually never seen naked by a man. Not even her husband would normally ever see her feet. Uh, it was customary to, for a woman with bound feet to sleep, not only in bindings, but also in special bed shoes, sort of sleeping slippers that covered her lotus feet. So we don't want to avoid the fact that uh, foot binding had, had an innately disfiguring nature. Yeah. But at the same time, it was also an incredibly complex social practice. It's hard to comprehend, perhaps, how a mother would have her daughter's feet bound, like why a mother would put her daughter through this practice. But it's really important to also consider that, w- that once foot binding was a really common practice, leaving a child's feet unbound would basically condemn her to a life with no marriage prospects and societal scorn. And it's important uh, to also discuss the fact that this practice was also ingrained in women's culture in ways that might not be immediately apparent. Uh, Footbinding was passed from mother to daughter as an important rite of passage, and this really created a, a unique bond uh, in groups of women as adult women shared their knowledge on enduring the pain and discomfort of the procedure with younger girls. And they, in many ways, it's described as them teaching the next generation how to survive in a world where men had the power. So it was kind of like they're a mentorship, very unique, certainly not the standard mentorship you would normally think of. Um, yeah, I think it, this, it has parallels with female circumcision, also called female genital mutilation in that way. 
that it was a very mother to daughter practice with mothers passing information onto their daughters about how their lives are going to be after this practice is performed on their body. Yeah. Um, like I struggle to wrap my head around all of that as, as somebody who like, I, I have no firsthand experience with either of these cultures or practices. Um, it's hard, you know, as you said, without firsthand experience to imagine just surviving that. And then the idea of getting through it and then going, and I'm going to do that to one of the people I love most. Yeah. It sort of becomes a, an, an impossible situation for women in the culture to have to choose between a daughter who's going to be outcast forever and a daughter who's going to have this, this painful and debilitating and disfiguring a procedure performed on them. But they also, you know, culturally it had been sort of ingrained so much that that was an achievement of beauty that I think that kind of mitigated to some degree some of the thinking of this is horrible. Like, I think that in many cases there probably was no choice considered. It was just this is what you do. Right. To be pretty. Uh, it's, it's, mentally it's a struggle. Yeah. I think for, like you said, for people that have no firsthand experience of that. Yeah. Like I, I cannot honestly say what I would do as a mother if that were the choice given to me. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, but to get to the pretty things, <laughs> not to downplay the import no. of that discussion, but women also really bonded over the stitching of these lotus shoes. And this was a task which would often be performed in group settings. Like women would come together to sew lotus shoes. And these tiny shoes, which are now very highly prized by collectors, would often carry messages and symbolism in their decoration. Shoes for brides would have, uh, you know, message-laden symbolism in the form of embroidery or painted imagery. They would even have sometimes erotic imagery in the soles that was intended for the bride to share with the groom. Uh and shoes that were meant for day-to-day wardrobes would feature symbols and designs that express the wearer's personality. They would sometimes carry greetings from female relatives. They would also sometimes have astrological meaning. Uh, there were these little tiny works of art that had so much intent behind their every design that f- that also was kind of part of the the bonding among women was creating these beautiful little um accessories. Right. Well, and while foot binding had transitioned from being a source of status for women to a source of subjugation for women, the world of the lotus slipper remained really the world of women and was a very cherished form of expression. Right until the end of her life, a woman's lotus shoes were really imbued with both meaning and fashion. A woman's final pair of shoes, her funerary pair, uh, which she would normally make herself, they were also sometimes called her longevity shoes, was traditionally blue, and these would be fairly plain when compared to other uh, lotus shoes. But on the sole, a lotus blossom and other small symbols, sometimes like a crane, would accompany the embroidered phrase, every step a lotus all the way to heaven. And these are the shoes that they were wearing, you know, in their repose of death. And it's sort of a beautiful idea that they would be simple and beautiful and just uh, carrying this message that they were going to the afterlife in this sort of beautiful, delicate way. Uh, and I can only imagine what it's like to make your own pair of shoes that you're going to wear after you have died. Yeah, it reminds me of craftsmen making their own casket. Yeah. Um, Dorothy Coe, who Holly mentioned earlier, 
has written two books about foot binding and its cultural roots. And she said in an L.A. Times interview, quote, It is hard to romanticize the practice, and I'm happy to see it go. But it is a pity that there is no comparable but obviously less painful practice to take its place and bond generations. Before we get to how foot binding stopped being a standard part of a Chinese girl's life. Do you want to pause for one moment for a word from our sponsor? Let's do. Okay. And with that, we'll get back to the matter at hand of foot binding. Obviously, this is not a practice that's still going on. So the end of foot binding was actually catalyzed in part by Christian missionaries who traveled to China in the 19th century. And at this point, uh, foot binding was more popular than ever, and foreign visitors seeing it for the first time were immediately outspoken against it. And yes, this does indeed bring up a whole other debate over the conceit of imposing your own cultural norms on another culture versus the idea of interceding on behalf of children who you think are being systematically abused in this modification process. Uh, but that is a whole other discussion that could go on for Yes. This would be like a 12-parter at that it point. It would. We're going well, for one. And I remember uh, having a whole a whole long series of discussions in a class that I took in college about that exact question of, like, wh- when you are a culture, when you're part of a culture that is that is becoming introduced to another culture and that other culture does something that your culture finds to be barbaric and offensive, like, where is the line? Yeah. And I... We never got to any kind of satisfying resolution in that discussion. Because there isn't one. Um, again, yeah, that's a whole big mammoth discussion. So in addition to the work of the missionaries, there were also many Chinese intellectuals who went uh, abroad to study and returned to their homeland afterward with a new perspective on the practice. And they joined the chorus of cries for abandoning this tradition. And eventually, public opinion shifted against foot binding uh, enough for the ban that took place in 1912 to, to take effect. Yeah, and it's one of those things where it's not like the whole country suddenly went, oh, yeah, we shouldn't be doing this. I mean, this was something that um, was hard fought on both sides. It was not cut and dried. Uh, and while the embracing of this different fashion meant that little girls were no longer being forced to hobble on broken feet, it really also created this sort of lost generation of women in China who had grown up with modified feet and now we're finding themselves spurned to some degree as relics of an age that was more and more associated with this embarrassment over this practice. In an interview with NPR, author Yang Yang said, These women were shunned by two eras. When they were young, foot binding was already forbidden, so they bound their feet in secret. When the communist era came, production methods changed. They had to do farming work, and again they were shunned. Yeah, these were women that were never meant to do real heavy labor, as we said before, and suddenly they had to. There was just no choice. Right. So they had to keep up with people that had not had this modification done to their feet. Uh, I can only imagine how difficult that had to have been. And they were also shunned as being unfashionable. And while that sounds like an almost flip thing to even mention, it was actually a very serious and problematic issue uh, women were sometimes abandoned by their husband, husbands as a consequence of being suddenly thrust into this position where they were considered irretrievably unattractive. Uh, additionally, some women with bound feet were actually attacked in the streets and their bindings were cut and it exposed their feet in the assault. And since, as we mentioned earlier, 
women with bound feet normally never showed them to anyone. So this was an incredibly cruel and humiliating thing to do. Despite the ban, there were villages that still practiced foot binding into the 1950s. In rural areas where foot binding stayed in favor a long time after the ban was instituted, parents would hide their daughter's tiny feet in big shoes to try to fool government inspectors. Yeah, there are lots of firsthand accounts that you'll read where people talk about, you know, getting these big shoes and having to stuff them with cotton and trying to angle their foot in so that it would stay in the shoe and just so they could kind of maintain this thing that they still thought was really a part of their culture they didn't want to let go of. But eventually, foot binding was abandoned, even in these holdout areas, uh, as with any huge cultural shift. As I said earlier, it's not like it happened all at once. And it sort of slowly petered out over time uh, in these last few villages that hung on to it. There were also some probably well-intended but ultimately misguided efforts to force women who had bound feet to unbind them. But this was met with a whole lot of resistance from, from the women themselves because giving up binding as an adult, in addition to all the cultural implications we've just been talking about, often resulted in excruciating pain. Yeah, there's one story that's told, I think it comes up in one of Dorothy Coe's books where she talks about... um a woman going up to a man, I think she has like a, a a knot of dough that's been baked. And she says, if you can return this to its original shape, I will stop binding my feet. Right. You can't do it. Well, and once once a person's feet, like their foot bones have broken and rehealed repeatedly, like there's that, no going back. Well, no. And like, it seems like even with extensive corrective surgeries would probably just be a life of a different pain than the pain that was already there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and in her book, Cinderella's Sisters, Dorothy Coe describes this period after foot binding as a really emotionally confused time for a lot of China, as the country transitioned out of this cultural norm that had been ingrained for many, many centuries. So even I think there may be a couple of survivors still with bound feet. Uh, many of them died in the early 2000s that had been sort of the ones on record. But even so, it's like uh, when you hear interviews with them, there is this there's conflict even now or, in, you know, in the recent years uh, prior to any of them passing away, where on the one hand, they they sort of still seem to think it's pretty. But they also recognize that it's not really uh, something that is sustainable in the modern world. Right. Like they kind of recognize their own sort of awkward position, which is heartbreaking in many ways. Yeah. I it's like already said I can't even imagine, but I I can't even imagine like I can't even imagine living in a world where the relationships between genders are so heavily influenced by this practice that is eventually banned. Yeah. Like that I mean it really threw a lot of established cultural norms out the window and sort of like where do we go from here? Like how does this change everything? Uh, and, you know, that was a time when when China was shifting a lot anyway, culturally. Oh, yeah. So this was one part of a much bigger picture of constant change. Uh, but, yeah, it's a, a fascinating little part of the culture that I say little, but it was really huge because it was, it was really day to day life. Yeah. Affecting every aspect, basically. I was trying to think of like something um, like to modern Americans that would be comparable, but it's it's difficult to think of anything. 
Yeah. There's certainly no thing that we have been doing for like a thousand years that no one else was doing. Yeah. The United States as a nation hasn't even existed for yeah. a thousand years. I mean, the, obviously there were many people with many cultures here before, which brings up this whole same issue we've been talking about of when, when one culture begins to enforce its own norms upon another, what happens? Yeah. Food for thought, for sure. Uh, and with that, I will turn us towards listener mail. Let's do that. So this is a mail that we got uh, in response to our Maurice Duplessis episodes. And it is from our listener. I'm going to assume he goes by Denis um, and not Dennis. Although if he, whichever, he can give me a yell and tell me I'm wrong. Uh, and he says, bonjour, Holly and Tracy. Uh, and he says, I was, I'm, I'm editing a little bit because it's a longish email. So my apologies to Denis for taking out any of his words. It's a, a long email, but it's so full of interesting and good information. He says, I was happy and pleasantly surprised, uh, that this part of our history, referring to Maurice Duplessis, made it to the, to your show, but also because I'm a little bit obsessed by Duplessis, being from the same town and all. He has a statue, his birth house is a museum, the whole shebang really. I've always found the podcast uh, instructive and interesting, and I was intrigued to hear this story from an unbiased and different perspective. You see, not only is Duplessis in the Great Darkness still polarizing almost 55 years after his death, but it still relates to current political tensions and sentiment. I will do my best to leave my personal opinions out of this email, but for full disclosure, I work for the federal government. He's a Mountie. Nice. Cool. I don't think we've ever gotten an email from a Mountie before. Though if we have, I apologize that I did not acknowledge it. And he says, I want to elaborate on why Holly, I believe, did not get any response when asking English Canadians for info about Duplessis. That was me. Uh, in Canada, there is a wide cultural schism between French and English, but also Quebec and the rest. In Quebec, we learn little about other provinces past the Confederation in 1867, uh, the opposite is true for the rest of Canada, where they learn just about nothing about us at all. And this leads to an almost unfillable cultural gap between the two founding people and ultimately makes us both slightly ignorant of the other. And therefore not surprised at all that the Anglophones would know nothing of Duplessis. Ironically, Duplessis is mostly credited for seeding this gap in the first place. Which is fascinating. Uh, okay, I'm jumping ahead a little bit. As I said, this is full of information. I'm trying to hit the high points. Uh, there's an interesting tidbit you did not mention that I think is worth mentioning. The Duplessis Bridge, which collapsed in 1950 and was rebuilt, we mentioned in the episode, still stands today only a few meters north of where uh, the collapse happened. You can actually still see the old pillars sticking out of the water. It was left pretty much unchanged until last year when it went un- when it underwent renovations to modernize the lighting and enlarge it a bit, I believe. But the most interesting thing was the well-documented speech at the original bridge's inauguration. Duplessis said, this bridge will be as solid and long-lasting as the Union Nationale's government, which was ominous of the latter's demise, of course. Cool. Uh, he talks about the Duplessis kind of devious voting things. And uh, one of the good things he actually did is still here today, the flag. Prior to 1948, 1950, in its present form, Quebec had a Union Jack-type provincial ensign, as many provinces still have today. Looked at Ontario, for instance. But in his push to give French Canadians their own identity, and for other political reasons, I'm sure, Duplessis had the new flag pushed through the assembly, and it became the ominous Fleur de Lise, or the white St. George cross on a blue background with Fleur de Lis in all four corners. This was a major departure from the unified federalism that existed prior to his reign. Interestingly, this was actually a Roman Catholic flag going to show his closeness to the church. 
Equally interesting, one of the early drafts for the flag was a single red maple leaf, which, of course, became the Canadian flag in 1968, I think. Don't quote me. I did not look up to see if it was 1968. My apologies. And he does talk a little bit more about other things and some of the other things that he was associated with and accused of. But I really like uh, this paragraph towards the end where he says, I have come, I've always come to the conclusion that Duplessis was as close as Canada ever came to a dictatorship in the sense that given some more time, I'm convinced it would have turned into a personality cult. Even with the orphan scandal, we were treading dangerously close to a totalitarian regime. Uh, so cool. I love having all of this insight, uh, from someone who is from Quebec and can give us that perspective. Cause as I said, all the Canadians I know are not from Quebec. Yeah. Uh, I think I have a couple of relatives there that are so distant. I could not get a hold of them. So, uh, it's very cool. We also, I should point out, uh, did get some letters from people in other parts of Canada that said, no, no, we did learn a little bit about Duplessis in class. Mm-hmm. Not as in depth, certainly as someone who grows up in Quebec, but. That divide is very fascinating to me. Yeah. It's super fascinating to me. Uh, if you would like to write to us, you can do so at historypodcast at discovery.com. You can visit us at facebook.com slash mistinhistory, at mistinhistory on uh, Twitter, mistinhistory.tumblr.com on Tumblr, and you can visit us on pinterest.com slash mistinhistory, where we are pinning away and have pictures of Duplessis, and we'll soon have pictures of beautiful lotus shoes. Uh, if you would like to learn more about what we talked about today, you can go to our website and type in the words foot binding into the search bar and you will get an entire article called How Foot Binding Works uh, or Worked, past tense, uh, which covers some of the things that I talked about today and some other elements of it. And you can learn about that and almost anything else you can think of at our website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Audible.com is the leading provider of downloadable digital audiobooks and spoken word entertainment. Audible has more than 100,000 titles to choose from to be downloaded to your iPod or MP3 player. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash history to get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today.